shut up and sit down. It's almost a metaphor. We're still in the same pretty house, but now we see, oh, the basement, you know, it was really the foundation the entire time. Welcome to Popcraft, where we'll autopsy the screenplays behind your favorite films and TV shows. I'm your host, Carl Albert, and I'm sitting here today with Namir Kalik, a good friend of mine, a childhood friend of mine, who is currently working at Imagine Entertainment in the feature films development division as a creative assistant. Did I get that right? Yeah, something along those lines. I don't know if there's a hard and fast title for me, but yeah, I think that gets it across. Awesome. Um, so Namir, when I prompted him uh, with what he wanted to talk about, we uh, both, you know, we came to finally the conclusion that we were going to discuss Parasite, which I think is a, a really interesting movie to discuss at this specific point in time, just because Squid Game has kind of taken the world by storm. And I think there's a lot of similarities between the two uh, in terms of thematic content and obviously even their place of origin in South Korea. It's also a bit of a challenge as a script to analyze because it doesn't follow a lot of the rules that are kind of established in the canon of storytelling, especially in terms of how we do it in Hollywood. So I think it'll be a fun one to discuss. Absolutely. And I... I... (laughs) I keep doing this to myself where I'm like, oh, I'm going to like kind of like introduce a lot of like concepts to people that I learned, you know, in film school, like three act structure, whatever, like eight sequence structure, you know, a lot of these like kind of basic Hollywood approaches to storytelling. And I keep like then tackling like fucking Midnight Mass, which is so non-traditional and now Parasite. And uh, I guess it's continuing this trend of making things too complicated for what I'm trying to teach the audience, but... That's that's life, I guess. Complicated's good. You don't want things to be simple, and I think it's true. Parasite's a great example of a complex script because it doesn't follow all the things that you've already discussed on this podcast. I'd say it doesn't follow a normal three act structure. It doesn't have your kind of typical standard character arcs. Um, it definitely doesn't follow the hero's journey. <laughs> um, so it's definitely an outlier in that sense. But obviously, it still works. Critics thought so. I think audiences generally love the film. Um, so it'll be interesting to dive into what exactly makes it work, despite the fact that it's kind of breaks the mold in terms of how stories should be told. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think there are a few key things about it that are very traditional and are part of why it appeals to so many people. Like one thing, you know, as, as we were touching on this before we jumped onto the podcast that I really appreciate about the movies, it has a sense of humor and I think that helps it reach more audiences like obviously countries you know different cultures have different types of sense of humor but i think parasite has one both in terms of its physical comedy but also just like how silly it can be you know like the opening scene is is that family like looking for the wi-fi you know it's it's so goofy from the get-go and i think that gives it kind of a broader appeal and entertainment value that helps it and also it's very intense and is constantly driven by conflict in a way that some slower Oscar movies, you know, Oscar type like highbrow movies are not necessarily always like really propulsive, but it really is. And I think that is part of what helps connect it, even in terms, even though it's very non traditional, like you said, in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, let's just jump right into it. Yeah. I mean, going off the humor thing, do you remember what the very first line of the script is? I, I can't recall this specific. I'll read it to you. Uh-huh. I, got, I got the script right here. So it starts out. Title sequence over black, accompanied by dark but curiously upbeat music. I feel like that line, dark but curiously upbeat, just perfectly lays out 
exactly the tone that you're going to expect for this movie. Literally. And that's how it ends, too. I read the first half of the script yesterday in the second half. Today, I got interrupted by life in between. And I think it ends like with the almost the exact same sort of line. It's actually it's like, a perfect inversion of the first line. Yeah. Versus music plays bright, but with an undertone of hopelessness. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> perfectly encapsulates the kind of tonal shift that takes place halfway through it the does. movie. It does. It really does. Yeah, I kind of inverted in that way, where it starts out as a farce with, you know, darker undertones and ends as a tragedy with some level of comedy you know humanity mixed in i mean that's not something that i think as a beginning writer you can get away with is writing like music cues that are that specific into it you know sometimes you can write like play you know this song here or like if you're writing a montage like do like oh bohemian rhapsody here and like sometimes you can get away with it especially if you're doing like sort of a, a guardians of the galaxy style like the music plays a role in the story that's definitely something that is non-traditional and is a very writer-director way of approaching the script. That's actually a great point because it it's, gets a little granular, but I'll notice a lot of, you know, kind of middle-of-the-road screenwriters will use specific music cues and so they'll say, this song by this person plays at this moment. I think it's a lot more interesting, gives a lot more leeway, a lot more creatively kind of involved when you don't necessarily say it's this specific song or music but you kind of lay out creatively what the music sounds like. So saying, like, this script does dark but curiously upbeat music, you know, that's still very specific and kind of describes why that music plays and kind of gives you an understanding of the purpose behind the music rather than just saying, you know, this song by Bon Jovi plays, which doesn't <laughs> really tell the writer or the reader, you know, the purpose behind the song. You know, you can, especially if it's a lyrical song, you can kind of, hint at it but that often gets on the nose so i think the way bong joon ho does it here is a um, perfect way to approach how to use music cues and i'm gonna cut into this topic real quick when you were talking about it you reminded me sort of of how you approach your job and, and your specific point of view and your training with it can you describe for our audience what your job looks like what what is it that you do specifically and like how how is that perspective maybe a little different than someone just trying to make it as a screenwriter yeah so film development in in the you know most basic broadest terms is coming up with an idea for movie and then finding the right people to put that movie together and the first half of that coming up with the idea can come from a bunch of places it can be an original idea you saying something like oh i want to find a movie in the world of surfing you start it out with that basic nugget of a concept and kind of build it out from there. It can be based on IP, which a lot of movies these days are, yeah. whether books or true stories or kind of things that have made, been made in the past that you want to revamp. And the third thing is a writer will come to you either with a finished screenplay or a pitch or an idea. Um, and depending on how much you trust the writer will kind of depend how, how far along they can be. If it's you know, someone who doesn't have too many credits to their names, you'd probably want to see a full screenplay from them. If it's someone who has 10 amazing featured credits, then if they come to you with, you know, a very small kernel of a pitch, then you might be more willing to trust them. And I think for this script, Parasite, it most likely falls into that third category. This is right. something that's very specific, very creator and voice driven. It's not something you can really sell in a trailer or in a pitch because of how specific it is. Because of that fact, it actually makes it a bit of a tough sell. Um, so if you're not a Bong Joon-ho sort, sort of person, it might be tough to 
kind of get the point across short of actually writing an amazing screenplay of this caliber, but it can be done. Sure. And you mentioned before we hopped on that if you got this script, you would probably pass on it. Can you explain why you mentioned that? Yeah, I think it's because of what I just said, that it can't really be sold in a trailer for what it is. Right. Um, Part of that is kind of just like the brand that Imagine Entertainment is. It's, you know, big studio actor-driven movies. This Parasite is obviously a bit more indie, a bit more kind of, I wouldn't say niche, but something that you can't really sell with a movie poster, something you're not going to draw audiences from with the get-go. So it does represent a bigger risk. Um, right. And that's just something people on my end obviously consider because, you know, our job is kind of the nexus of the creative and the business and the financial. So it's taking all those things to, into account. However, you know, it is a lot of different variables. If the script came to me with the name Bong Joon-ho written <laughs> on it, even, you know, before Parasite, you know, I'd know, oh, this is the guy who made Snowpiercer or Okja. I'd be a lot more willing to trust the script combined with the fact that it's a brilliant script. So it, it, it's really a whole matrix of, of elements that kind of go into decision in terms of whether to you know, pursue a story right. depending on what you have. But, you know, this is not an obvious easy sell, I'd say. Definitely. I mean, part of like what you said, getting back to Parasite, that is so difficult to sell about it is we were talking about the the difficult tone and a lot of that is mixed together with Parasite's approach to genre, which is very mixed. I think you've seen a lot of think pieces since the movie came out about people talking about how it's hard to peg it as one genre. You know, it kind of covers a lot of genres. So it's hard to make a trailer of it, right? Like what, what's the tone? You like, do you approach the the farce of it all or do you like treat it like this serious tragic oscary movie or do you focus on like the thriller aspects of it and i i think that's one of the things you know we'll get into how it balances those genres in a second but i think that's one of the things that really makes it difficult to advertise and maybe a more difficult sell especially in you know the u.s hollywood market yeah and in terms of the marketability it is a weird balance because on the one hand everyone wants something new and fresh no one wants to keep seeing the same movie over and over and this script does accomplish that but then again how do you sell it without giving away what the movie is in its entirety right so it's you know it's a tough thing to figure out but this movie seems to have succeeded oh yeah i mean definitely i think a best picture and all the different oscar wins it got i think it's uh certainly had a little bit of success yeah um (laughs) you know you can look up what the audience metrics are but i i I haven't done so but i think it it would most likely be the case that something probably around 80 percent of people who saw this movie saw it after it won the best picture award not before you know before that's true yeah yeah it's i mean partly you know coming out south korea not that many people are going to have heard of this movie until the oscars but also just because it's not going to have a huge marketing budget it's not going to have a wide theatrical release across the united states so you know movies like these unless they like kind of reach a certain caliber of acclaim they're not really gonna off the bat have a huge following so absolutely you know bong joon ho you could argue this is his best movie but it's not his first great movie it's not his first great korean movie but this is the one that broke out a lot of it is luck when it comes to these things in terms especially when you combine the audience metrics of it but yeah you know it's a good thing that this one broke out because it deserved to oh absolutely i love it i i was telling you how this is a movie that appeals to me on many different levels where it not only has the sort of the sophistication and the intelligence of a lot of more Oscar best picture type winners, uh, pardon any noise you hear 
it also though has a lot of heart and a lot of humor and it's just like it's entertaining to watch on top of being a genuinely like perfectly constructive subversive intelligent uh makes you think sort of movie yeah i i know you have you probably have your own modes that you like to use to kind of analyze films there's one that i like that i think could be perfect for this movie uh you know the writer kurt vonnegut yeah yeah i wrote movies like slaughterhouse or sorry novels like slaughterhouse five yeah cat's cradle he used to do this thing where he'd create a graph to analyze kind of the narrative arc of a movie so imagine a graph the x-axis is time along the movie the y-axis which goes both above and below the x-axis is kind of the status of the characters in terms of how well they're doing or how poor they're doing given that your average tv episode a lot of movies are going to be in the shape of like a parabola or what he called a man gets into a hole so starts high someone's doing okay someone gets in trouble they dip below the x-axis then they get out of trouble come back up out of the x-axis and that's where the episode or the movie ends then you could have something like cinderella someone starts off relatively low then you know fairy godmother comes takes her to the ball she goes high then the clock strikes midnight and she goes way back down but not as far as she had because she always had that night and she has that with her but then the prince comes to find her and she goes up back over x to infinity for parasite i think if you use that kind of format it would look like the shape of a staircase I think staircases are are very interesting in terms of this script because it's both very relevant in a narrative perspective and also the structure of the actual script. In an average screenplay, how many times do you think the word stairs appears? I don't know. Twice, once. Twice, once, yeah. I I looked it up for a few scripts. In um, Pulp Fiction, it appears, I think, four times. In Chinatown, it appears eight times. In the entire Star Wars original trilogy, all three scripts, it appears a total of seven times. Do you know how many times the word stairs appears in the script for Parasite? No, how many? 78. That's actually insane. Every other page. Wow. I I wonder if that's intentional, because it is such a clear symbol for the movie. It definitely is. That's wild. So there's a lot of stairs in the movies, but I think, metaphorically, the movie itself is a staircase. That starts going up, and every 10 or 12 pages or so is one step. It goes up and up and up until it flattens out and ends in a cliff that just goes straight down, way below the x-axis. Um, and we can kind of like walk through what those steps are, if you think that would be helpful. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I think that's a, a great way, and we can kind of touch on a lot of the, the turning points in the movie. I mean, yeah, let's jump into it. Yeah, so like the first 10 or 12 pages kind of establishes where the family starts out. You see yeah, that great scene where they're searching for the Wi-Fi, and then they're they're putting together all the pizza boxes and getting screwed over by the pizza place lady. <laughs> and then around page 10 is when um, the son's friend comes and offers him this opportunity to go tutor the girl. So the next 10 pages are him kind of conning his way into the job making the his fake university certificate um and by page 20 he's got the job and he re- realizes there's opportunity for his sister to jump in as well so he creates the opportunity the next 10 pages from page 20 to page 30 or so are about his sister jessica also getting her job in the family where she becomes the art tutor for the son around page 30 they've both established themselves in the in the house um and now it's time for the dad to come in and he spends the next 10 pages kind of getting his job as the family's car driver and then you know the mom comes in another 10 pages and so and so um and by page 60 the entire family has kind of gotten themselves into this family this they've each taken one step up and their fates have each each time risen a little bit 
And around page 60 is when we have that great scene where the entire family is sitting around the Park family house while the Parks are out on vacation. They're drinking the Parks whiskey, sleeping in their beds, taking baths in their bathrooms. Um, And this is basically the family's highest point. Absolutely. And then right around page 70, right around the halfway mark, the doorbell rings. And that's when the maid shows up. And that's when all hell starts breaking loose. The maid shows up around page 70. Around page 80, she realizes that they're all a family. They drop one step. Around page 90 is when they kill the maid, when they drop kick her down the stairs. That's another step down. Page 100, around then, is that great scene where the father, the daughter, and the son are all stuck under the couch. You remember that? <laughs> yeah. And the parks. The parks Mr. Park, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, yeah, like... He's talking about how he smells Fingers bad. his wife, too. Fingers while, his wife, but also, more importantly, he's talking about how right. Mr. Kim smells really bad. It's just humiliating for them, And he's right? talking yeah. about the daughter's dirty underwear. And this, I think, is their moment of realization. Because this whole time they had a plan to kind of inculcate themselves into this family and the general rich lifestyle. This is the moment when they kind of realize that that's never going to happen. And I'll pull out the script, but there, he about 10 pages later is where Mr. Kim kind of articulates that idea. He says, Do you want to know how to make a foolproof plan? Don't plan at all. Have no plan. If you plan, something will always go wrong. That's life. Look around. Do you think these people got up this morning and said, tonight I'm going to sleep on a dirty floor with hundreds of strangers? But look where they are now. Look where we are. So this is their moment of realization when they've taken a full step down. You know, they had a plan. They thought it was going to work. But now they know it's never going to work. They were never bound. They were never destined for it to work. Um, And this is kind of where they fall off the cliff. And it's just all downhill from there. So I think, you know, the first 60, 70 pages, each 10 page takes a little step up. And then from there, it's just all the way down. And this is kind of going back to that, you know, X, Y axis story structure that Kurt Vonnegut talks about. This is not a common kind of shape for a movie where it goes up and then just goes all the way down. It's almost the only thing I can really think of that kind of mirrors that is maybe Kafka. But that's like a guy starts low and then just keeps going low. There's no there's no high point in a Kafka-esque story. I I think it's I I would push back on that. I think it's uncommon nowadays, but I think that's a very classic structure in that I think it's the structure of a Greek tragedy. You know, you look at Oedipus Rex or Romeo and Juliet. A lot of those sort of classical tragedies follow that format exactly where, like, your your characters start in, you know, a relatively low place. Like, Oedipus is kind of a nobody at the beginning of the story, but then he rises up, he kills the king, marries the queen, and he's on top of the world, but then he finds out, oh, the queen was my mom, the king I killed was my father, oh, I'm the reason that everything is going wrong in our kingdom, oh, fuck, until it ends and he's blind and everything has just fallen apart. That's that's a very good point. It is classically a shape of a story you would see often. It's not one you would see a lot in modern-day Hollywood. Definitely not. Definitely not. Because, you know, there's this expectation that audiences have that things are going to have a happy ending. Right. Or at least, like, a bittersweet ending, you know? Something and this not, is a full-blown tragedy. Yeah. Like, that, it's like, not uplifting. There, there was something that came out of the journey, but there was nothing that came out of this journey no. for the Kim family. They would, They were better off at the start of the movie than at the end of the movie. Yeah, they didn't change for the better. They didn't they, change. It, it actually got worse. Their family, like, fell apart. Yeah. You can't, again, you, they, there's not really that standard character arc where you can say they've grown as people. 
they may have learned a lesson, but they're not better people for it. If anything, they're more cynical. They're worse off. You know, there's that line that the mom says about halfway through where she says, the parks aren't rich because they're nice. She says they're nice because, because they're rich. Right. Um, and, you know, there's kind of this idea that if I were this rich, I'd be nice too. And, you know, we're kind of hoping that they become rich and therefore nice. But by the end of it, we know they're not going to be rich. So no. They're definitely not going to be nice. I remember seeing this headline around the time the movie came out i don't think i'd seen the movie yet that was like because it was like around the same time the joker came out which is a movie i have a lot of thoughts on but anyway the the main character in parasite like ends the movie in sort of this creepy like he has like a brain injury so he's has this weird laughter complex you know where he suddenly starts laughing without any like reason and he's like fantasizing in a way where he's just like completely disconnected from reality. It's ambiguous enough that like I guess you can interpret that he does all the things he says he's going to do, do and like saves his father, but I don't think that's supposed to be your takeaway. I think the point is it's a fantasy. Yeah. Um but that that it's such an interesting like place for him to end as a character because he's it it almost feels like it's like a villainous story but it's more mundane than that like he he's just miserable now and like yeah again, but with this fake laugh right like the laughter's fake that's like almost kind of the point of it right it's this very artificial place and it's so much more unsettling i mean i feel like that sort of as like a symbol embodies kind of the tone of the movie is like he's laughing but it's like fake it's like a medical like something is fundamentally broken in him right that is making him laugh right again it matches the perfect last line of, of this script for parasite which is bright but with an undertone of hopelessness right exactly yeah. exactly it's like on the surface things are cheery right but deep down after the story we've just been through we know that's not the case absolutely and going off of that uh while you were sort of laying out the plot of the movie and how it fits into this vonnegut staircase structure it reminded me of some of the things some of the subversive things the movie does really well and i i want to start off with the approach to different genres that we touched on early on the movie starts out sort of as a farce where like you have them searching for Wi-Fi. You know, it's very comedic. It's very goofy. You have them following uh, like a, a gif of the pizza box folding and like just all these silly behaviors. And if you watch the trailers for the movie, that's kind of what the movie is sold as. Really? Yeah. Okay. I had never seen a trailer for it. That makes sense. I can kind of see it, especially because that's sort of the foundation for it. And in a way is the tone of uh, there's that underlying sense of like humor to the movie that we touched on, that we talked about. But I, I think, one, they promise a level of darkness early on with that opening, you know, over black, sort of the music, I think, kind of cues you into what the movie, how it's going to make you feel. But uh, other than that, too, I think the movie never fundamentally changes. It's just that you suddenly now understand what was underlying everything the entire time. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. It's almost the metaphor in the movie of this very explicit metaphor of the poor people living under the rich people in this danky ass basement that that's almost sort of the whole like reason they get away with this genre twist where it's like the characters are pursuing the same thing throughout the entire movie i mean they they face different obstacles but their goal is to make money and to find happiness through making money to be sort of these pawns in this capitalistic system like rising up into a level of at least a feeling of kingship and so you know, they have their farcical adventures where they con their way into this family and then suddenly they realize, okay, this deeply ill, crazy man is living underneath the house. There's the darkness added. There's this, you know, the poor person fights poor person conflict that erupts from that. And that basically, it doesn't feel wrong to us, even though it, like, 
is deeply shocking and upsetting that that middle of the movie twist because it's still all in pursuit of the same goals right like it's the, the through line is the same even if the tone has shifted somewhat or our understanding of what this movie is about has shifted somewhat that it's like we're still in the same pretty house but now we see oh the basement you know was really the foundation of the house the entire time and that it kind of manages to execute that tonal shift with the promises it makes early on via the music and via the the goals of the characters that remain consistent throughout. There's this great parallelism that happens on both sides of the tonal shift where things are very much mirrored. So one thing that I'm reminded of is around, you know, in the very beginning of the movie, there's the scene where the Kims are coming out of their basement going to the pizza shop and kind of con the pizza woman into giving them money for the shoddy job they've done and um <laughs> you know making the pizza box and there's this line of action where she thinks who the hell are these people and it's in italics then after the tonal shift when they discover the man hiding in the park family's basement and um the that man and her his wife um the maid for that family kind of takes them hostage with the information that you know this family is in fact family and has kind of conned their way into the park family's house there it's this funny scene where the maid is giving her husband a back massage they're like laughing and being really jolly while the whole family the kim family they're like hostages they're literally hostages with their hands up and as they're watching the maid and her husband just like laugh like maniacs there's also a line in italics that says they think who the hell are these people so there's a shift where they went from being the conners to being the ones conned. They went from the ones being the ones coming out of the basement to the ones watching people coming out of the basement. So there's this shift in terms of who the, the Kim family is in relation to the story, in relation to the thematics of the story. What's interesting though is if you analyze the writing, the writing doesn't really change after the tonal shift. It you know the before and no. after it it doesn't take on a grittier tone. It doesn't become darker. The language kind of remains the same sardonic tone. Um, so it's not really a change in terms of the specifics. Again, it's a change in perspective in terms of what exactly. we understand. That's that exactly gets down to what I was trying to get at is it's it's a change in perspective and that's why they get away with it is the movie hasn't fundamentally changed it's just your perspective of the movie has yeah and the information we're privy to yeah. in relation to what's going on in the story because you know the guy was in the basement the whole time we just didn't know it exactly exactly and there are all these little clues you know with the lights flicking on and off and everything and you finally understand why the maid was like exhausted and looked like she wasn't getting much sleep because she wasn't because she was caring for her husband in the middle of the night. Moving from there, I want to get into something even a little more granular, which is the sequence where the Kims con their way into the jobs in the house. Because on paper, if you just look at it sort of from a very broad, like bird's eye view, it looks very repetitive. So it looks like something that you shouldn't get away with. Like you'd be like, okay, maybe it's funny. But like that, that is a solid chunk of the movie where they're doing the same thing over and over again. But how they make that work is by the specific ways in which, and I think the entire movie kind of does this, and most movies do this, where they up the stakes, they up the tension in every little one of those those little sequences where, you know, you start out and we have a first, you know, the main character, the, the our sort of POV into the world, goes in and he's just offered the job and he just has to, like, prove that he's somewhat competent and so he, like, sort of flirts with the daughter and that gets him the job, basically. Then you have him presenting his sister as a potential art tutor, and things the the stakes are upped a bit because 
they have to lie about her, you know, they have to forge her documents to really make her seem like a legitimate tutor, a legitimate choice. Things are a little more riskier, the stakes are getting higher, but she succeeds, they continue going, and oh, there's the driver. We want to get our dad into the driver. Well, now they're actively getting someone fired. Now there's someone else involved in the stakes. And so they're getting that much higher. They're, they're getting that much deeper. They're digging the hole that much deeper yeah. for themselves. And so it's that much more intense. And then finally, we end with, obviously, the last con, getting rid of the maid. The maid who we've seen the entire time, who seems like a sweet person, who maybe the audience has come to have some level of affection for. And now they're basically ruining her life. And it's this maid who has literally been there since before the other family moved in. That she, in a way, is like part of the house. And so things are that much more personal. The stakes are that much higher. That she can always come back and be like, you know. And they're taking even bigger and bigger risk. Where it's like it's one thing to leave your panties in the driver's car to like make him seem like he's fucking people in the car. And another thing to like straight up lie about a woman's illness with the slightest effort that could be disproven you know it's much harder to to disprove you know that you've been boning women in you know your your uh client's car than it is to like disprove oh i don't have tuberculosis and so things are getting more and more risky and more and more personal and so while it looks like in a very superficial way they're doing the same thing over and over again it's actually getting more and more complicated and more and more twistier and laying the entire foundation for how the movie is going to fall apart, you know, how their lives are going to fall apart throughout. So that whole sequence ends up just escalating everything and effectively setting the foundation for the House of Cards to fall apart. Right. Again, it's that dramatic staircase where the fortunes of the family are rising with each step, but so is the tension and so is the stakes. The other thing that section does is to kind of distinguish each family members kind of steeping themselves into the family is at first we think it's kind of happening by happenstance you know the son's friend kind of out of the blue comes and offers this job and then when the opportunity for his sister to come in as the art teacher comes up we think it's a total coincidence but by the time we get to the dad and we see those flashbacks of him literally training his lines to say like you know he's a good driver literally training to drive a lexus or mercedes or whatever the fancy car was we realize that the family has had a plan the entire time this was their plan um and it's not just happenstance and you know by the time we get to the mom we realize that they had this idea from the very get-go the other thing that they do is they decrease or actually increase the number of scenes to kind of heighten the tension so when the sun's going, it's kind of all just one scene, a lot right. of long takes. Uh, when the daughter goes, there's the added stakes, there's the added elements. We kind of cut between what the daughter's doing and the mom below, kind of like wondering what's happening in the bedroom with the kid. When we get to the dad, it's a lot of different cuts between the house, the car, the driver, um, the park, Mr. Park. By the time we get to the mom and how she gets into the house when they kind of poison the housekeeper with uh, peach fuzz is literally a montage with something like 50 different cuts you're so yeah that's a great point um i i I wonder also about that how much of that was intentional how much of that was just natural out of the storytelling that as you're raising the stakes you're getting faster you know the the scenes begin to take on a rhythm that just escalates and escalates until i mean bong joon ho is a master that much is clear and he absolutely deserved all the awards he got for this movie because even as we talk about it i'm getting you know a greater appreciation for the depth of the craft 
Yeah, I mean, if you, if you keep things static as things are going, then you're not really using, again, that staircase where you're kind right. of heightening the tension. So, the, you know, there's, again, it, it comes in a lot of different ways. It comes in narratively. It comes in with the construction of the actual film in terms of the production, in terms of how you're cutting it. It comes into the writing. It, it, it's kind of like a full-fledged thing. It's not just something that you can kind of write in the page and let it happen. You have to have all the elements come together to make Every, it work perfectly. Yeah, it's the staircase in the making of the movie too, right? Yeah. You got to keep like winding things together, building up and up and up. Yeah, and another piece of very specific craft tied to everything we've been talking about is, is the midpoint, which is in the vast majority of stories, a turning point in the movie. You know, I, I think I would say it would probably be, I would be making an assumption, a, a pretty large assumption if I say that every story has a midpoint and that's a giant turning point. But certainly the vast majority of stories do. And I think this is like a crucial thing for writers to notice and, and to realize is that midpoint is so important for your story in terms of it being the moment that you can reveal, oh, there's a man living in the basement. It's in Jurassic Park, the dinosaurs get out. You know, you could go on and on in all these different movies that the midpoint is a moment that you can utilize to completely shift things around and shake up the story and escalate it so that in, in the back half of the movie, everything kind of falls like dominoes. It's something basically that you don't want to miss out on, that it's take advantage of it and don't like necessarily push away from the idea of like following structures that maybe are traditional because they're, they're used that way for a reason. We like a level of symmetry oftentimes, and that's exactly like we've talked about what this movie gives us is it everything changes at that, that midpoint. And so, you know, at the beginning you have the dark, but with an undercurrent of like joyfulness music. And at the end you have, you know, the upbeat, but like, or I may be mixing that it's up. Bright, but hopeless. Bright, but hopeless. Yeah. And that, that midpoint without that, you don't have it. It would, it would feel wrong. Is it like, if you had that turning point, you know, two thirds of the way through the movie and it's like, I mean, first of all, the pacing would probably just feel way off. And that's maybe in, in a big way, the big biggest part of it is like, it keeps your movie propulsive. Like it, it makes sure that you're continuing to complicate the plot, complicate the character's arcs and to continue to escalate the tension of it. Yeah, you're so right. I, I think, you know, you're, the audience is expecting something to happen at the halfway mark. Oh, yeah. But this movie subverts that expectation because the audience usually expects something to happen within sort of a range of things that have already been established for what the story is tonally and narratively. And this this movie just moves beyond that range in terms of shifting the tone, in terms of shifting the scope of the story, in terms of what we know what's going on. So I think that's where it succeeds in kind of standing out in terms of its shift midway. You're right, like most things have a midway point. This is why I think it feels a little different for this movie. Oh, definitely. It definitely, it's more dramatic, I think, than a lot of movies where like, it like fundamentally changes the movie you're watching. Like we talked about your perspective of it um, and it is very subversive in that way. I think it is tied into that midpoint. It's interesting because those middle scenes like that, that what make up that midpoint in a very concrete way, it, it's led up to by just like the characters like fucking around for like four or five pages. Like if you look at that, there's like not really much conflict. Like they kind of like rib each other and like pretend like, you know, to get pissed off. Like Mr. Kim pretends to get like pissed off at his wife and shit. And, and, and but it's like, it's very low stakes on its surface, but it feels tense because you have the underlying, the bomb under the table that I've kind of, you know, talked about in previous episodes where they're not in their house. They're finally breaking character. You know, they're 
acting like themselves. And so even though it's just them fucking about, they're vulnerable now. There are beer uh, beer cans strewn about. There's food everywhere. If the Park family came home, then they'd be fucked, which, of course, is what ultimately happens, right? And that's sort of part of how what makes that midpoint, I think, so effective is it, it seems so casual, but there's this underlying level of tension. And it kind of highlights how that, that entire first half the movie has worked, where it's like, it is a farce. It is very humorous. It like The characters are often just like doing things that are maybe not necessarily as uh, thrillery. You know, the stakes aren't like life or death. But there is that underlying bomb under the table that, like, oh, we're playing at these characters effectively. And then at that midpoint, they finally let those characters disappear. They think they're, they've won. They've reached that high point, And that's when things fall apart. Yeah, it teases this narrative stagnancy before pulling the rug out from under the audience. Exactly. You could say that scene where they're all sitting around the house, drinking the whiskey, taking baths, sleeping in the Park family's beds is the least tense, the least high-stakes moment of the movie because you think the family's settled. But the very next moment is perhaps the most tense, the most high-stakes moment. Right, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, it's again, it's it's that midpoint where everything changes. And, uh, yeah, something to absolutely take advantage of in your own screenplays. Yeah. I'd love to discuss why you think this movie works so well with audiences. So I think, again, I think a lot of it goes back to kind of what I talked about early on, that I think it helps that it has a sense of humor. I really think that, like, uh, this is just me spitballing. I don't, I don't, you know, I certainly don't have science to back this up, but I think comedy helps make things feel more approachable. And even to the darkest points of the movie, there are elements of humor, you know, added. Like, in the, mo- in the moments of, like, the utmost tension, there's humor. Like, when they're fighting over the fucking phone, you know, and they're all rolling around on the floor how they ultimately defeat the maid is they like use her allergy against her her peach allergy which is just so inherently comical but it still is like i mean that's a great plan and payoff that like oh yeah she's allergic to peaches you of course you use that against her to like take her down right when she's trying to hold you hostage but so i uh, yeah i think this sense of humor helps make it feel more approachable and makes the characters feel more human and a lot of that, I'll admit, is tied up in my own sort of subjectivity in terms of what I look for in movies, that I certainly have a hard time with movies that are all serious all the time, just because life isn't like that. So just it feels artificial to me then. But I think on top of that, I think it is, you know, the, the theming of the movie is very prescient. I think you see that now, again, with Squid Game, where it's talking about income inequality, it's talking about debt, and it's talking about sort of the, the cutthroat ways in which people often have to act to find a level of success in our society as it exists today. And although, you know, South Korea is different from the U.S., from the U.K., from all these, you know, Western cultures in a lot of ways, it has a very similar foundation of this sort of capitalist economy, this consumer economy really built up where in the last, you know, several decades, the income inequality has grown so much that when you have these underdogs... You know, it gets to that primal thing where you have these underdogs that, of course, you're naturally going to root for, relate to. They're not likable in any traditional sense. You know, they that's that whole conversation they have about how the parks, in a lot of ways, at least at first, seem nice. And are the characters we're following are conning their way into a family, into a seemingly nice family. But we understand why they're doing what they're doing. And we can so personally and intimately relate to their struggles that it just is inherently, I think, compelling to a lot of people. 
I don't want to say most people, but, you know, I do think that this probably reached a broader audience than a lot of Best Picture winners. You know, like, I think it probably appealed to more people than, like, Moonlight, which is another Best Picture winner that I loved. Because it has that humor, because it has that underlying thematic, it, it touches on very broad topics in a way that I think are very relatable to a lot of people. Yeah, I'm curious about this from the perspective of just what I do for work. Do you think, since you mentioned both the tone and the thematics, do you think the reason people related to it has to do more with kind of the tonal matrix that's uniquely portrayed in the movie or is it more the thematics that are portrayed to the narrative or is it just hard to kind of parse out which is ultimately responsible for the movie's success i mean i i certainly i'm not an expert about it so i certainly wouldn't feel confident being like this is the reason the movie was successful this well, is what the about just for yourself but, but for me i think I come at it from a very specific perspective where, like, I certainly am, you know, like, what I, I was excited to talk about this on the podcast because I like deconstructing movies for their craft. So the, the craft of the movie was immensely compelling to me, the way it juggled those tones, you know, the, the way it structured the movie in a sort of, in a way that seems subversive, but once you really, like, analyze it, it fits into, you know, certain boxes that we can place on it. It's so competently made that I just have to admire it. And I just enjoy watching it. You know, like I said, for the humor, for the characters, for for the drama, for just... It's just like a perfect movie. I mean, as close as any movie can be to being perfect. So for me, you know, it it really is from that sort of analytical perspective that, that why it connected with me so much. But I think for audiences, I don't think it's the tone because I think the tone is so specific and so bizarre that it actually maybe would rub a lot of people the wrong way or maybe like it in a lesser movie would put people off it i i think it is a combination of the theming and i don't know i i i definitely think the theming is a big part of it because like i'm trying to think like i I, i've referenced squid game now multiple times you know without breaking into squid game spoilers like that has a much more that premise is much more obviously commercial it has that hunger games thing where it's like okay the stakes are like obviously life or death from pretty much the get-go as opposed to this which is it ultimately ends up being life or death but it's not like that's not there until very late in the movie uh so i don't know i i it isn't commercial in a lot of traditional senses so it is curious why it was so successful and why it really did go beyond your traditional like film lover or Korean film lover audience into being something that really did find a lot of success in the United States to, to the extent that HBO and Mark Ruffalo are now making like an American version of it, which we don't need, but that's neither here nor there. So I don't know. I, I think the theme is a big part of it. And, you know, I said the tone, but I, I don't know if you could peg it down to one specific thing. Yeah. I talked about how if this script came across my desk, I might have passed on it just in the context of kind of studio movies because it is, like you said, hard to sell in just one line. I think the reason why it might be a difficult decision for me to pass on is because it is so subversive. We want things that subvert our expectations narratively. We want things that subvert our expectations tonally. This does all that. It's so unexpected. And I think that's what makes it ultimately successful and why it appeals to audiences and kind of broke out. But in that slow sort of way, it wasn't, you know, a huge box office hit its first weekend. It took about six months after it came out for it to really hit its stride. 
um, and kind of connect with audiences once they kind of just heard about it word of mouth wise. So I think it's it is that weird combination where you know you do want you do want something that appeals just off off the basis, and I think you kind of get that with the tone initially in terms of the humor and comedy in terms of the struggle that the family's going through. But then it becomes something else that you only get once you actually start either reading the script or if you're watching the movie, then you kind of understand it that in the whole context it's very different than what you thought it was going to be and that's something we're always looking for and so i think for the writers out there who are doing their own things you want to find ways that you can kind of subvert what we're expecting what we know stories to be we don't want to be seeing the same thing over and over so you want to find your way to put a unique spin on something on something whether it's a genre whether it's a type of story whether it's a kind of a stock character that we might we might have some typical expectations for find your own way to kind of put your own twist on it that makes sense that feels new because the world's always changing and stories need to change with it and i think parasite's kind of a perfect example of that in terms of a story that fits the time that it kind of comes out in but also has the (laughs) classic timeless elements of narrative that we all come to expect and just like deep within our minds are kind of seated at almost a genetic level in terms of the satisfaction we want from stories you hit on just then a lot of the things that i think make it connect so much with people is like it it hit this cultural zeitgeist in terms of talking about income inequality it also has like an x factor that's hard to explain i think that's part of why it's hard to pin down exactly why it broke out the way it did but it also then has that sort of classic universal like you said like it almost feels like genetic you know that you go back and it it has a similar structure to oedipus rex where it's like there's something we do still get out of tragedies and even if they're not as commercial and not as popular as they used to be back in say like shakespeare's day it's still i think there is something in us that like when we see that tragedy done well and when we do get catharsis from it because i think we do get catharsis of a sort from parasite it's just maybe again it's a subversive sort of catharsis it's not our traditional like our character is a better person now than they were at the beginning or or whatnot the hardest needle to thread is between subverting our expectations of what a story should be while still maintaining what we know stories to be and the kind of satisfaction that we expect out of them because if you subvert something too much whether it be kind of the structure of the story or the tone, then it could just end in total disappointment because you say, this is unrealistic, this just doesn't feel right at like an innate level. So Parasite really strikes a perfect balance in terms of being different enough that it feels fresh while at its core still having what we expect stories to have. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's, again, on the very subjective level, why it appeals to me and why the craft of it appeals to me and intrigues me so much is that it's simultaneously like so subversive but also so like traditional once you really put it down on paper like in terms of we have these characters who have a propulsive journey the the momentum builds like it doesn't like reinvent the wheel in terms of like it's not like nomadland where like almost nothing sort of happens throughout the movie you know and there really isn't catharsis in any like sort of traditional sense like parasite gives us what we feel stories are you mentioned nomadland that's probably exactly the reason why nomadland did not strike out as a big hit even after it won best picture while parasite did connect with audiences after it won the award yeah oh absolutely is it is it it went almost too far for most people you know it's the same thing with like mulholland drive is a movie i think i've talked about on this podcast that i'm not very fond of 
but some people really love Mm -hmm. you know some people say it's like the best movie of all time and i think because it just fundamentally doesn't work like we're used to stories working it makes it much more niche and a much harder to hit the zeitgeist so i think parasite having very traditional characters and characters like you said who play off archetypes they're korean i think dramatic archetypes more than they are american and i and i do think there's something that still has a universal appeal to them but you know they definitely have the, the sort of the way the family's made up in that movie all of those characters like are kind of a traditional archetype in a sense the dad for example who's like kind of likes to drink and is like a little goofy and like can be you know sort of a dunce who seems like he's sort of a, a good for nothing and then the wife who is like kind of a shrew and calls out the, the husband for being a quote good for nothing but like how they, they they end up being ultimately very competent in their own ways like the dad ultimately ends up is is very competent even if you know their plan falls apart they they do they're great con men and then you have you know the sister who is sort of this like cool girl like almost seems emotionless but like has this vulnerability these these are archetypes you can see like again if you watch squid game i think you'll see a lot of these archetypes play out in the characters in that show and it's the way that it twists them the bong joon ho twists them in this story the way he uses them as sort of almost chess pieces in the narrative to fit into what he's trying to say in his specific voice that i think makes it so compelling and i'm certainly not like the right person i don't think either of us are the right person to like do that specific analysis and get Mm -hmm. down into those korean archetypes like into real detail but i think that sort of touches on like you know you can take sort of these characters that we know people like that connect with us on a very like base genetic level for whatever reason and still find your own approach to them your own voice your own like way of shifting them around you can do the the sort of unforgiven i i mean the movie unforgiven approach to like cowboys a western hero where like you maybe take a more grounded a more like cynical look at that classic man of violence yeah and you know twist it around with what you're wanting to say and what your point of view is there's such a universality to the story that thinking about it i have trouble seeing anyone not enjoying this movie as it plays out the only reason i can think of someone not maybe liking this movie is because it ends up too dark because it ends in a place that you wouldn't want it to end because it doesn't have that typical happy ending as the movie's playing out basically until the last 20 minutes i think I have trouble seeing anyone not enjoying themselves watching this movie because I agree. it just it has that perfect balance of being fresh and new and subverting what you think is going to happen while still raising the tension and the stakes in a way that's satisfying to us innately. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I actually saw this movie with my family, and you could not get like a group of people who have such like varied tastes. Like there's certainly overlap. Like we'll tend to like watch like Marvel movies, like a lot of these big blockbusters together. But beyond that, like, we all go sort of in our own directions. Like, I definitely love horror in a way that the rest of my family does not. My dad is big into, like, really stupid, like, B-movies, like, sci-fi movies. Shark Croc versus, like, Mega Croc versus, like, the Shark Nader. I don't, there, you know, there's some, like, dumb movie with a title like that. Uh, sci-fi channel movies. Yeah, exactly. Sci-fi channel movies. My sister really loves, like, sort of British storytelling, like, kind of the classic, like, but, like, very feminist British stories. So, like... Um, actually, the show I'm thinking of is, is Australian, but she loves, I don't know, there's like a very specific, almost like aristocratic, but feminist approach to escapist romance and drama that she really likes. Um, and I mean, I could just go on, but like, we all went to Parasite, and even my dad, who I really didn't think was going to like the movie, I have to be honest, came out loving the movie. And again, I, I think it, like you said, it, 
has such universally like appealing approach to drama to comedy to everything that it, it really is i think you know i'm sure if you go on the internet if you go on reddit or twitter you'll find someone who's gonna be contrarian and doesn't like it and or maybe you know just genuinely doesn't like parasite but i think the vast majority of people if you sit them down and they really gave it a shot and they're willing to read subtitles and not like put up a wall there because i know that's like a thing for some americans they would have to enjoy it it's just like such an inherently compelling movie even if like you said they maybe don't gel with the tragic ending to it yeah i think if you were to make the claim that this is a perfect movie that would be your best piece of argument just how it satisfies people universally. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, again, it's kind of a sad fact that this isn't something initially that a Hollywood studio system would obviously jump on, despite the fact that it clearly connects with audiences. Um, so I'm curious what you think because I have my own ideas about it. But I'm curious what you think that kind of where, where does that gap come from in terms of what people who work in Hollywood think audiences want versus what movies like this show they actually want? I think the true answer to that is very complicated, but I, I think sort of on the broadest picture view, it's just about money, that Hollywood is investing more money than anyone else, and money people are in charge of deciding, obviously, where they're going to hand out their money. It's, it's literally, you know, it's about the capital of it all. If you if you want to make as much bang for your buck on you know a hundred million dollars, you're going to invest that a hundred million dollars in like a superhero who people already know about. Who there's already a built-in fan base with a formula you know works. Then you are like this very subversive. Even though you could theoretically make two movies, you know, with that a hundred million dollars, two like solidly budgeted movies, fifty million a piece. Yeah, they're still going to pursue, you know, the, the the one thing that seems like a more surefire hit. Yeah. You know, I think it really is about sort of fitting that. It, it's just about being like safe and trying to make as much money as possible by spending as little money as possible. And Parasite is much more of a risk. I, mean, I, I really do think it's about as simple as that. Hollywood is a business even more than it's ever been before in terms of like it's run by the money people less so than like the creatives per se. And so then the creatives also like, you know, you have like, Ron Howard founded Imagine, an incredibly talented filmmaker in his own right. But I'm sure he has to make those money decisions too, you know, and that, that, that is just foundational to what gets made. And so it sort of is that sort of top-down thing where it's like, if, if your number one thought is how do we make money, then you're fundamentally going to invest in something that's a safer bet. And I mean, that makes sense. It is tragic in a way, um, certainly as a writer like I, I wish there was more desire to take risks but it also makes sense just for where how the industry is structured yeah it's a paradox that the uniqueness of this film is both what made it successful but in the eyes of Hollywood would also before it's being made would have made it a big risk because Absolutely. There's, because there's nothing like it that exists you don't know how audiences are going to react to it you don't know what the reaction is going to be you don't know whether it's going to be well received so you don't know until that jump is taken and hollywood's not going to want to take that jump because they want to go with things that are bankable that they know audiences are going to respond to that have a proven track record but again the paradox is if you keep doing the same thing over and over people get tired it gets stale and that thing's no longer gonna be as successful absolutely so you know occasionally we do need movies like this that are an infusion of something new 
But then the irony is, a year later, every studio in town is saying, we want our Parasite. Right, exactly. Get us a movie that's Parasite, <laughs> but a different name. That's Hollywood, baby. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we're, we're definitely coming up to the end of our time. Do you have any last thoughts on Parasite? Um, no, just, again, it's a great uh, script to learn from, both in terms of how to maintain kind of the core elements of what a story is, but also do so with a unique twist, so... If you haven't read it, give it a read because it's a fun read. Despite Absolutely, its 145 pages. It felt like a breeze when I was reading. Yeah, it. I I didn't realize I I read one without page numbers, so I didn't even realize it was 145 pages. That's crazy. It goes really fast because it's again it's that it falls that falls it falls under two hours too, doesn't it? I don't remember. Um, I, I, it's certainly not two and a half hours. I don't think so. No, um, it has that speed to it because again, it, which goes to show the page a minute rule is bullshit. Yeah, I feel very strongly about that. <laughs> <laughs> the page a minute is not a real thing but again because it's broken down into those little steps of 10 pages it doesn't feel like it's just one big 140 page slog it feels like it yeah. keeps stepping up its game every few pages so absolutely i think that that's the best lesson to take from the script it goes back to that structure you said it's the staircase you know and that you're inherently you're building tension building tension until the bomb goes off um until it drops off yeah exactly it ends in a cliff all right well thank you namir this was a lot of fun do you want people to find you on social media? What's your social media? What do you want to hand out to the world? I don't have a social media. You can add me on LinkedIn if you want. <laughs> there you go. Namir Kali, N-A-M-I-R-K-H-A-L-I-Q. Awesome. Please consider donating to Patreon. Check out the socials link below. I'll have the link to the Parasite script below. Leave a review if you feel willing to do so. And thank you for listening as usual. My name is Carl Albert, and this has been Popcraft.